before I begin, um, did you catch that little, that little glitch in, in what Paul wrote here? That little apparent mistake. Um, verse 16. Oh, yeah, I did also baptize the household of Stephanas. <laughs> Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. I mean, just, um, just two verses after saying the only people he baptized were Crispus and Gaius. He comes out with this. Oh. <laughs> and given the context, it, it does cause you to wonder. Um, was Paul really making a mistake or was Paul kind of highlighting this, this foolishness of, of putting your trust in any human being? I'll leave that for you to decide. It just popped out at me, especially uh, with the way the reading was done this morning. Duh. Well, this morning I will be short and I hope sweet, um, because my aim is to provoke us to think, not to explain the biblical text, or tell you what it means, or ask a bunch of questions and then try to answer them. Um, In the immortal words of Pink Floyd, consider this brief meditation as a kind of spiritual short, sharp shock, though ideally not too much of any of those except maybe the short. What would it be like if we understood ourselves to already be one in Christ, to believe that unity is already ours, a gift given to us through baptism into the death of Jesus, that we are already one in Christ and one in the Lord. What would it be like if we understood ourselves in that way? Now, imagine this all too typical scenario, a congregation, although it could as well be a conference or a denomination or a worldwide body of believers. But For this morning, let's think a little smaller. Imagine a congregation, a Mennonite congregation. Nice, plump attendance on Sunday morning. Nice range of ages and incomes. Friendly, mostly tolerant. Not looking for trouble, anyways. Um, Nice bunch, honest, generous, hospitable. For the most part, the divisions among these folks uh, don't rise to the service, and if they do, and the subject's not too hot, they can agree to disagree or agree to not talk about it, which often amounts to the same thing. And there's something honorable, I think, about such reticence. I mean, why, why fight about things that aren't important? Why argue? It tends not to get us anywhere. It can hurt feelings and strain relationships. And those are good points. It's wise to take the measure of the source of disagreement and decide whether it's sufficiently heavy to risk argument and all the chaos that comes afterwards. Some things just aren't worth debating if that debating is only going to lead to hurt and alienation. Now, the trouble is, of course, that nice folks can make the same decision not to talk about something because it's too heavy, not just because it's too small to fight about. Nice folks can use the same logic of preserving relationships and protecting a sense of unity to avoid addressing the things that really do matter. Nice folks can come to believe that unity is a fragile thing, like a piece of fine crystal, something that needs to be protected at all costs. It's too precious and too weak to take any chances with. And so nice Mennonite folks may resist discussing the hard stuff because they don't want to jeopardize their relationships. They don't want to risk losing that fragile unity. And this is how congregations function, at least the ones made up mostly of nice folks. Now, there are congregations, let's be honest, that resemble Monday night wrestling. 
with all the posturing and flexing and shouting and crocodile tears anyone could ask for. Congregations whose life together is all about personal power, climbing to the top of the small hill called influence and fighting off all contenders. There are congregations like that, mean, sweaty, hostile places uh, held together only by the unwillingness on everybody's part to pack it up and go home. But that's not the kind of congregation I want us to imagine. I want us to imagine a congregation of nice folks. And I don't mean nice in a smarmy or, or negative way. I mean it at face value. Nice folks. Folks who know their manners and practice them. Folks who seek to be gentle and graceful and kind. Folks who care deeply about relationships and listening and speaking clearly and using I statements. Nice Mennonite folks. The kind of folks that anybody would want to go to church with. Nice folks care about preserving the community. They care about preserving and protecting their sense of communion. And so they also tend, in my experience, to avoid conflict or controversy or difficult issues or anything else that might get ugly and so cause rifts or cause divides and in some other way mess up that sense of communion. Now imagine that some unavoidable issue comes their way. Imagine something develops in their own congregation that simply cannot be ignored. Imagine something that cuts right to the heart of their faith. Or, to be more realistic, imagine something that cuts right to the heart of some folks' faith, but that leaves others in the same congregation unmoved. Something that some see as requiring dialogue and debate, as requiring the taking of a position or the creation of a policy, or a subcommittee, or an ad hoc committee, or some other committee, or an establishment of a fund. And others see it as really no big thing at all. Until that is, those who do see it as critical start talking about it, and then advocating that we do something about it, and then calling for the congregation to get on board behind that something to do about it. And suddenly those of us who didn't see it as worth fighting over can be forced to take a stand, or at least motivated to take a stand in order to preserve the prior equilibrium. So there's a call made to stop being divisive, to stop talking or agitating or advocating in ways that disrupt the sense of unity within the community. And then the agitators or the advocates um, or talkers respond by saying that, well, this is what Christ calls us to, uh, to take a stand, uh, to take some action to write some sort of statement. And the others respond by saying, no, that what Christ wants is for us to be one, to be united. And sooner or later, something gives, right? Maybe some folks leave, whether from one side of the debate or the other. Maybe some folks simply hunker down and wait for things to blow over, because it almost always does blow over, which is one of the benefits of being in a congregation full of nice people. Um, Maybe some folks become jaded or disappointed or shut down and stop engaging for fear of not being heard. Maybe someone calls a truce or calls in a mediator or in some other way takes the reins, gets everybody to settle down and try to work constructively toward restoring order, regaining the sense of unity that was wrecked or damaged by the conflict. And then whoever's left, when the storm is passed, whether that passing includes a resolution or a decision on the issue at hand or a reconciling of the injured parties or a formal statement from the church leadership or a service of repentance and communion, whoever's left sets about picking up the pieces, sweeping the floors, and helping everybody rebuild the community, restoring the unity that they had before the crisis and all the stuff that came with it. Now, nice folks, especially nice Mennonite folks, 
especially nice Mennonite folks who have experience with conflict transformation or mediation or communication or are in some other way well-therapied and well-trained, well, they can see such a disaster coming a long way off. They've read the books, they've heard the stories, and they know that conflict is risky business, and risky business has a sort of disreputable air about it. Um, Not sleazy, really, more just like kind of being right on the edge. Um, Not worth taking a chance uh, over because, well, the smart money's on the sure thing, right? Uh, Not on the risky thing. And so, nice Mennonites carefully measure the dimensions of the difficult subject and measure it twice before it has the chance to cut the body once. And that measuring takes time and who knows, maybe if enough time passes, well, it'll all get sorted out and we won't need to talk about it at all. And really, I am so sympathetic to those nice folks that I've asked us to imagine this morning. I admire the commitment to putting relationships first. I admire the genuine humility, the reluctance to stake out positions, to assert opinions, and to whack their sisters and brothers around with their Bibles or their educations or their clever arguments. I admire the impulse to resist division and the splintering that too often follows. I'm grateful for the empathy that can prevent us from hurting each other. And I share that deep respect for tradition, a word that gets sneered at all too often these days, and the heritage and values and stories that are vital to the continued life of a body. I really do understand why my imaginary nice Mennonites want to avoid hard topics and difficult stuff and all the line drawing and the hurt feelings and the wounded spirits that come afterward. For all of their expertise in the world of conflict resolution, Mennonites really don't like to have conflicts that need resolving. And who can blame them? Not me. Well, I promised that this would be short and sweet, and it's getting about time to keep that promise, the short part anyway. Um, In my little imaginary scenario, and I think in the real world, too, there are likely as many reasons for avoiding conflicts as there are people in the room. And a short, sweet sermon can't possibly attend to them all. So instead, let me invite us to yet another bit of imagination. What would it be like if we understood ourselves to already be one in Christ? to believe that unity is already ours, a gift given to us through baptism into the the death of Jesus, that, that we are already one in the Spirit, that we are already one in the Lord. What would it be like if we understood ourselves to already be one in Christ? In other words, imagine that our unity in Christ has already been given to us. It's finished, completed, perfect, never to fall away or break apart, any more than God will turn away, or the Holy Spirit will blow away. Imagine that our unity is not something that we have achieved on our own strength in the past by aligning ourselves with the proper leader, Paul, Paulus, Cephas, Menno, or by joining the proper denomination, Catholic, Protestant, Mennonite, Quaker, or by an act of our own individual wills. Imagine that our unity has been given to us in the body of Christ, that when we were baptized, we became one with Christ and Christ's people, and that that unity is established and will not break or even bend at our whim or our failure or even our sin. 
Imagine that our unity is like God's own house, the place we all long to be, a place we enter and are safe forever, surrounded by walls that have been built by God and accompanied wherever we go, whether in or beyond those walls, by the very Spirit of God. In my mind, that's what Paul reminds the Corinthians over and over and over again in this first letter. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. That's a given. It's a gift already given, never earned, and so needing no protection or preservation or vigilance on the part of the Corinthian believers. The unity is theirs in Christ already. Imagine that. Now, this doesn't prevent Paul from telling the Corinthians to behave themselves. In fact, it's because they are in Christ, because they are one, that they have to change the way they behave. All those old imperial ways of being make no sense in the body of Christ. The old divisions cannot coexist with the unity that they've been given in Christ. And so he tells them to stop belittling their brothers and sisters and stop cheating them, stop committing adultery, stop treating the poor differently than you treat the rich, and on and on. Paul does not hesitate to call the Christians in Corinth to behave themselves. But rather than telling them to behave themselves in order to be one in Christ, or to behave themselves in order to have unity, Paul tells them that they already have it. They just need to act like it. Now imagine if we believe that to be true. That our unity is not dependent upon our behavior. That it's not a fragile thing of our own making. Something to be protected at all costs. A motivation for us to resist doing or saying anything that might start an argument or a debate or some other uncomfortable form of communication. That our unity is instead as strong and steadfast and eternal as the sacrifice of Christ. And then when Paul says we die with Christ and rise into Christ, that he really means it. Imagine that our unity extends beyond the bounds of a congregation and encompasses a district and a conference and a denomination and a Mennonite world conference. All those, and beyond that, all those sisters and brothers across the world who have entered the house of the Lord through baptism into the death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Imagine if we could once and for all lay to rest the fear of losing our unity, just remove that whole extra layer of fear, if we could just count on our unity like we count on our salvation and trust that it will abide forever because God has made it so. Imagine if we really believe that. How might that change the way we approach each other? How might that change the way we live with each other? How might that change the way we approach difficult things? How might that change the way we deal with conflict? How might that impact our ability to genuinely agree to disagree in love? If we believe beyond a doubt that our unity is not ours to protect, but is as sure and solid as the floor under our feet and the ground under that, how might that free us to engage each other at deeper, more profound levels theologically, socially, politically, communally? Now, like Brother Paul, I hasten to add that our behavior in these conversations matters. Our conversations, difficult and otherwise, must always be guided by love, compassion, empathy, gentleness, meekness, humility, patience, peace, and mutual respect. 
But let's not confuse the need to behave well toward each other with preserving our unity. Let's not mistake the need to avoid wounding each other for maintaining our unity, the care for one another, the learning how to live well together, the mutual compassion and love that guides our conduct. Those things are works in progress, right? They require regular practice and accountability. But our unity, maybe capital U unity, our unity, that's already ours in Christ. That's something we don't need to work at. Instead, we need to work at living as if it were so. We behave well toward one another, not in order to create or defend our unity, but because we are already one in Christ. And that's simply how the body of Christ is supposed to behave. So, this is not a call to throw caution to the wind. Um, It's instead a call to consider a different perspective. To start by confessing that we are already one. And confessing that that unity cannot be shaken because it's in Christ and from Christ. To start there and then seek to behave and wrestle and struggle and argue and debate and listen as people whose unity is already secure and so not something in need of our nice behavior or our best defenses. In short, to behave like people who are already one in Christ rather than like people who either need to manufacture that unity or in some way to protect it. Like all of our other so-called good works, we do them not in order to earn our salvation, but because we're already saved and so want to learn how to act like it. Well, this has not been nearly as short or as sweet as I promised, so feel free to confront me about that later. Um, We're already one. You can't get rid of me that easily. You're stuck with me. I'm stuck with you. We're stuck with each other. That's what it means to be one in Christ, right? Um, No easy walking away. No easy pushing away. Um, We're with each other. So feel free to confront me about the length of this sermon. Um, Just remember Paul, okay? I mean, confront me in love. Don't hurt me. Don't call me names. Don't shut me out. Don't be afraid of me. Uh, Don't be afraid that our relationship will be broken and the unity of the body of Christ will be damaged by a little bit of confrontation. Imagine instead, remember instead, confess instead that we are already one in the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. That in baptism we died and were raised in him and that our unity in Christ is a forever and ever thing. Our call, our call is to live like we believe it. Or, perhaps again, more realistically, to live like it even if we don't quite believe it in the hope that one day we will have all the proof that we need to believe it. May God make it so. Amen. Please turn to number six in the 